a Highline podcast. Hello, welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Stephen Torna. I'm Kat Dwyer. How are you doing this beautiful, fine week? I am doing well. I'm happy it's Friday. I'm happy it's hot out. I'm happy it's not raining. Yes. It's, Good. Yeah, it's like hot, hot. Mm-hmm. My little California roots are happy. Yeah, right. Some sunshine. <laughs> nice and dry. Mm-hmm. Mm. What did you do this week? I worked my little butt off. And... Uh, I had a colleague in town, which was nice. She usually works remotely from D.C., so that was fun. had a little gin with her last night. Ah, nice. <laughs> and, uh, nice Thursday evening gin yeah, session. Totally. And Monday I had taken off, actually, because it was uh, Steve's uh, birthday. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah. How was, was that? It was great. We went to the Garnet Mountain Lookout, uh, which I've hiked up there but never stayed, and that is the coolest. That's awesome. Old and fire so, lookout. So... Is it? It's decommissioned. It's yes. not actively being used, yes. but it's still now. It's a now. It's essentially just a forest service cabin that you can rent. Super cool. Yeah. Is it like two story or do you have to like? It's a two story. the The second floor is where there are actual bunks mm-hmm. and a stove. You know, um, and then in kind of like a common area, and then below is basically just a woodshed. Yeah, it's like the views are insane. Oh, I'll have to Absolutely check that out insane. Sometime. You can see the Gallatin River. You should. can see like you can see the. 181, you can see, uh, or 191, you can see like out into Gallatin Valley. You can look back towards like Big Sky. Like it's very cool. Very cool. Yeah. All right. I might have to look into booking that for at this rate next year. Next year. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, we were talking about how like really we, you know, it was in the middle of that historic storm with all the rain. And I don't even, I don't know if that's fair to say if it, the storm itself was historic, but just like all of it, it happening in the snowpack that we've had at this time and the melting was, I guess, what was historic. But so we were in there and it was raining and it was actually quite beautiful because the whole thing's glass. Mm-hmm. But had it been like a warm day, it would be a little bit like a, like a, like uh, a hot box. Yeah. Like a little yeah. hot house. Yeah. So I think fall is the time to rent that place. Good to know. Yeah. How was your week? Uh, good. Just spent, well, the first half I spent just hanging out with some friends that were in town, uh, making the best of the weather, or the best that we could of the weather. <laughs> yeah. So hiking and fishing and shooting in the rain. All the rivers are blown out, so the fishing was not really a thing. But we, we went out, and uh, it was super cold. We got to like actually start a fire to keep warm, which was kind of fun, <laughs> kind of a novelty. And then like mostly we just kind of hung out and ate delicious food. We probably cooked four hours every day because we would like get up and make amazing breakfast and then we would do like easy lunch stuff and then we would usually cook some sort of amazing dinner. Nice. So it was like, I just got fat, <laughs> just drank beer and ate good food, Nice. Um, but it didn't suck. And then just wrapped up the rest of this week. Um, like half a Wednesday until now, just working, just getting stuff done, trying to catch up. So no complaints. Right and on. now that the weather's like really nice, mm, I'm ready. Totally. We are going to the Wilsall Rodeo this weekend. That is right. A whole bunch of people are going to be there. Yeah. So that that's going to be a blast. It's going to be hot, mm-hmm. sunny. 
I'm so excited. There's going to be street dance afterwards. That I'm very excited yeah, for. Yeah, live music. Yeah. Going to be hoot, hoot nanny. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, beyond that, no no other updates from last week. Because I took, like, a week off, so. Yeah. It was, like, nothing nothing eventful happened. Just fun, for just, fun like, yeah, nice just, things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, great. One little thing I'll share that you'll appreciate. We're doing our uh, Perk Host the Student Summit every year, and... um. I they went and did a a cool field trip and I wasn't on I wasn't on the field trip with them but one of my colleagues told me that uh the intern that I mentioned who asked about buying whiskey bench stickers mm-hmm. and apparently listens to the show I guess on the bus the tour bus he was like telling everybody about the podcast no way <laughs> yeah <laughs> and he was encouraging everyone to like listen to it so heck yeah hey that's what I like that's what I like I, that reminds me I got some people I need to give stickers to which. You know, I won't publicly shame you, but I'll privately shame you. They're all people that I told multiple times to take the surveys to get a free sticker. Oh. And then they're like, I never got a sticker from you. And I was like, did you take the survey? Like, no. Well. Okay. Well, I'm nice. So I'm going (laughs) to give out stickers. Like the good king I am. (laughs) Good king. The good king I am giving out (laughs) treats to my subjects. Right. Have a sticker. (laughs) (laughs) That's exciting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Like, I, I want, yeah. Listen, yeah. Tell your friends. <laughs> tell your parents. Next holiday dinner, talk whiskey bench. Talk whiskey. <laughs> It'll be worth it. You'll you'll make friends. Trust me. Or you know, yeah. start some like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> heated conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Where are we drinking? Oh yeah, I I haven't even tried it yet. I have. I just took my first sip. Okay, we are drinking a short fuse. Mm, which I'm thinking is an appropriately named cocktail. Yeah. Kind of. I don't know. Kind of. It it's works. a little bit hard to like line up, but I, I feel like we've done decent for most of the episodes, except for if, if it's like a classic cocktail, you know, yeah. it's hard to line that up with sure. what's going on. But yeah, we're drinking a short fuse. It's got some uh, nice gold tequila. Ooh, it smells amazing. It's a really interesting color. It is. So let's back up. Let's try it. And then I'll tell you what's in it. And has this like muted raspberry color. It almost looks like a like a hazy beer. Yeah. Like a hazy raspberry IPA. Yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah, you got a nice froth on mm-hmm. it. Wow. Okay. I like it. A little tart. But uh we got two ounces of golden tequila, three ounces of fresh grapefruit juice, which the grapefruits I have are really good, but they're really pale. Hmm. And I don't know how, like, I know there's different types of grapefruit, but, the, yeah, the juice was not particularly pink. Hmm. It was more cloudy gray almost, but they taste really sweet and they're delicious, but whatever. So three ounces of grapefruit juice, ounce and a half of lime, uh, and then a quarter ounce of cherry juice that I took from the maraschino cherry can. Hmm. So it's like a sweet cherry syrup. Gave it a good old shakedown. Threw a lime wedge in there, and voila, one short fuse. Now, I will say, it calls for apricot brandy, <laughs> just a quarter ounce, mm-hmm. and your boy doesn't have apricot brandy in my pantry right now. I probably should go get some. A lot of recipes call for it. It's just, you know, like, ah, oh, $50 bottle for a quarter ounce? Right. 
Gonna have to pass this one up. Right. <laughs> so it's, you know, I'm a fraud. I'm a fake. It's not a real short fuse, but, you know, give me a break here. It's torn a short fuse. Yeah, I'm working with what I got, and I don't have billions of dollars of funding from the U.S. So. Right. <laughs> my bad. Right. Which is a good segue into kind of what we're going to be talking about tonight. There you go. Um, <laughs> as we continue our conversation about Russia and Ukraine and all the goodies that we've gone over so far, we need an evening to, I don't know, I have a feeling tonight's kind of going to be more ranty, but <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we just need a night to like go over the idea of a proxy war, talk about the fact that like this is a proxy war, even though people have been trying to say it's not for a while now, and then also just a lot of the peculiar things that have happened between Ukraine and U.S. and Russia, mm-hmm. you know, just like fun, cute little happenstances that probably don't mean anything. Wink, wink. Right. <laughs> they're just a coincidence. Yeah, they're just coinky-dinks, you know. Yeah. So I think it'd be fun, and so I guess I can dive in first and just go over a little bit of the proxy war idea. And more importantly, as we tend to be consistently doing in this series, going back in time right, and moving forward, because it's like, all right, this has been going on since the end of World War II. So, like we have now in two other episodes, we're going to jump back to the end of World War II, <laughs> right. and I'm going to go through just real fast all of the proxy wars that we've had with essentially Russia. I mean, the USSR, but it's with Russia. Yeah, like, right. Right, they are the USSR. So... Uh, we'll dive into that. We'll talk a little bit about more like recent proxy war and the events of 2004 through now. And then we'll segue into you talking about more recent events and, you know, also leading into, I mean, it's at least proxy war adjacent, a lot of it. So let's jump into some really fun proxy war stuff. That's like good. all of these topics, and like I always say, this is a magical rabbit trail of joy. And you're just like, oh, I now have countless hours of other research I need to do about these topics that I really don't know anything about, specifically like interesting wars and things like that. So this is going to be exciting for me. I can find a bunch of exciting podcasts and learn about all these proxy wars and guerrilla groups and convoluted funding schemes and all this crazy stuff. There's a lot of rabbit holes for sure. Right. So right off the bat, what is a proxy war? I'm sure there's some technical, you know, definition of it. I don't have one pulled up. But basically, <laughs> the idea of a proxy war, for anyone that doesn't know, is two, two uh, well, in this case, like, two foreign powers that are at odds that, through funding and other means, basically go at war with each other using other nations as, like, a vessel, essentially. And so, you know, the U.S. versus Russia, they can't fight directly, in quote, they can't fight directly. So they start meddling in, like, other governments that, you know, the U.S. has interest in one country, so Russia will kind of get their toes dipped into the water of that country and then start funding, like, opposing groups, maybe like a, you know, a a guerrilla group or a anti-government group, 
whereas the U.S. might back the government itself or vice versa. As we dive into this, you'll see that this happens often. And then kind of like poke at each other and throw money at it and decide who they want to be in power and, you know, back and forth. And it never, ever comes back to bite anyone in the butt. Basically, since the end of World War II, as we've mentioned, the U.S. and Russia has been at pretty much perpetual proxy wars, basically East versus West. Like We've talked about this, Western ideology versus more Eastern ideology. And, frankly, all of their meddling has pretty greatly disrupted like and destabilized a lot of the globe, especially in the Middle East and things like that. So, I just have like a list of just like random wars with dates, and some of them I know a little bit about, others I don't know anything about, so I'm not even going to like dive into it, but I know that there were proxy wars. The idea of like supporting and implementing governments actually goes back pretty far. So, like starting with Cuba, 1898, the U.S. went to war with Spain in the Spanish-American War. They took over Cuba. They basically, I don't know what you would call it, they basically went in and had like economic imperialism and was like, hey, Cuba, you're going to only produce sugar. And then kind of, end quote, left them alone. So that was kind of the start of that idea of like putting someone in power that would like run the country, but doing what the U.S. wanted it to do, in this case, produce sugar. The start of that idea for the U.S. For the U.S., yeah, yeah exactly. Not yeah. ever. And then by like the early 1900s, the U.S. was supporting like a corrupt government they basically set up, right? And then 1959 rolls around and you have the Cuban Revolution, which was led by Fidel Castro, who successfully overtook the country, which, guys, that whole story is insane. <laughs> like, it's, you gotta, if you don't know much about that, like, you gotta go look into it because it's, it's amazing. Like, Fidel basically, like, took over the country with, like, a raft of, like, a couple guys. Like, in the scheme of things. And just was like, all right, we're going to get some rafts. We're going to storm the country and then, like, take over the government. And he did it, which is wild. So, Fidel Castro gained power. And then in 1961, the CIA started training Cuban exiles and then smuggled them from Florida into Cuba with an attempt to overthrow the government. That's uh, the Bay of Pigs. They did not succeed. Right. And then, what, was it 1963 with the Cuban Missile Crisis? I think it was 1963. So then right after that, 63, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis. Russia put nuclear weapons, or at least the U.S. claims they had nuclear weapons in Cuba. I think it's debated whether or not they were actually functional, but that, that's what was going on. Russia did it because U.S. put nuclear weapons in Turkey and aimed them at Russia. So eye for an eye. So that's like one example. <laughs> you then have examples all throughout Central America and South America of proxy wars between U.S. and USSR. You have in Guatemala, 1966 to 1991, the U.S. backing various organizations, Russia doing the same. El Salvador from 1980 to 1991, same thing. Nicaragua, 1981 to 1991. And then in Chile, uh, 1973, there was a revolution that overthrew a socialist leader. Most people think the CIA did it. So that's another example of South America. Yeah, throughout Latin America, the Soviets were infiltrating and imposing mm -hmm. communist regimes, yep. and then the U.S. through the CIA and other means were actively trying to depose those communist regimes. Exactly. And so yeah. with like the Nicaraguan example, I think it was like 1983, the U.S. actually propped up and implemented a dictatorship that was like U.S. ordained. 
which was then overthrown by leftist revolutionaries, which were the Sandinistas. Right. Who were backed by USSR. And like the Sandinistas and yeah. the Castro regime, still to this day, the Castro, you know, the legacy of it, yep. are, were brutal. Right. So uh, this isn't, yeah, again, kind of a theme we're discovering. There's no, it's not necessarily good versus evil. It's no. kind of maybe lesser of two evils. but Yeah. So then you have the Soviets who are supporting the president. His name was Daniel Ortega. Took power when the Sandinistas overthrew. And then you have the CIA who started funding and training the terrorist organization of the Contras. Right. And part of that was helping the Contras run cocaine which is where you get into all of the crazy things the CIA did. I mean, CIA started a commercial airline company under the guise of a publicly traded group that was actively smuggling cocaine into the United States. Right. Like, everyone thought it was just a startup company. Years later, you find out, no, it's literally a company that the CIA started. A front. A front. The sole purpose to help Contra smuggle drugs. And then also with that, I mean, you have massive amounts of weapons given to Contra. That led to all sorts of arms deals across the globe later. Yeah, the whole, like, Iran-Contra. <laughs> yes, exactly, Contra. the Iran-Contra thing. Like, there's no, uh, you know, negative effects of any of this. Like, everything gets real convoluted in all of these stories, especially yeah. with, like, arms deals. And, you know, like we have mentioned with Ukraine and these neo-Nazi groups, like, these groups are not pro-Western they're not allied with the United States. Like we think that we're using them for like our end, but they're, you know, they've got their own goals and, and, and dreams of what like their country looks like, which right. is important. And so then you have like, you know, the same kind of thing happening in Africa. So now we're moving from central and South America to Africa. We have proxy wars going on in Ethiopia, 1974 to 1991 in Angola from 75 to 91 in the Congo, 1960. Then if you move up in the Middle East, then we get into things like um, Afghanistan from 79 to 89. So this is where the U.S. supported uh, Mujahideen, which if you didn't know, one of their leaders was Osama bin Laden. We gave them $40 billion in armaments. $40 billion of armaments in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah, it's a lot. Think about that. It's we just lot. gave them, we just gave Ukraine 40 billion. Right. And that was a lot yeah, as yeah. well. <laughs> um, so Osama bin Laden was one of the leaders who, wouldn't you know it, after the Afghanistan war ended, created Al Qaeda. Going back into our early history, USSR, I mean, a lot of people think that first Afghan war, well, not the first Afghan, there's been a lot of Afghanistan wars over uh, the last th couple thousand years, but the most recent with USSR. One of the big reasons why the USSR collapsed. I mean, they just got absolutely drained from that conflict. So much money, resources, soldiers went into those 10 years that it really crippled the USSR. Where empires go to die, yes. right? Yes. Of course, we didn't learn that lesson, even though we helped right. <laughs> cause the conflict. And then in 2001, we invaded again. It's another story. Uh, we have the Korean War, 1950 to 53, which was backed by the USSR and the U.S. So you have the U.S. responding by sending uh, over 300,000 troops. China sent in 1.4 million troops. USSR was aiding in all of this. They were running missions. It was kind of one of these things where, like, Russia was like, we weren't there, but they definitely were. So it was kind of like this ignore it. Kind of part of the proxy war technique, like kind of 
just deny it, you know, don't let the public know. That ended with the death of a million soldiers and the murdering of two million civilians. And the Korean War, technically, on paper, has never ended. Because they basically just, like, divided Korea in half, right? And then they have the DMZ. But other than that, like, there was no formal end to the war. Right, there was so, no, like, yeah. settlement. Or- right. Same thing in the Vietnam War, 1957 to 1975. In Indonesia, 1965. And then uh, in Ukraine. From... Basically, 1948 to 2022. So, <laughs> so that's a that's a that's a rundown of the U.S. Russia proxy wars that have been going on since the end of World War II. That is a lot of meddling. Yeah, which is why I'm saying there's like this is magical rabbit trail that I have to go down now and right be like, oh, okay, what happened in Indonesia in 1965? Because I was just like looking through conflict that like the US and Russia was involved in and I was like I didn't know there was anything in Indonesia in 1965 like that the US and Russia would be right dealing with and now it's like okay that's probably some really fascinating uh bit of uh, of, uh history there this kind of ties into having to address the elephant in the room which is mainstream media in the United States bombarding us with the claim that like Russia is false in claiming that there's a proxy war between the US and Russia. Right. right. Which now, as we've mentioned before, like now that's kind of like, okay, like I don't think anyone really is on board with that. But I think they were put, they were pushing it for a while. Um, well, yeah, and it's still kind of taboo to yeah. speak about. But yeah. as soon as, you know, the White House started bragging that we were helping Ukrainians kill Russian generals, which is a pretty wild thing to admit publicly. Yeah, then it, it was. There was really no hiding the fact that, I mean, what do you call it when you're funding, when you're sending like cash, weapons, and intelligence mm-hmm. to a country to fight another country? Right. And what phys- is that and role? Physical then? training. Yeah. What is that role we're right. playing? Exactly. Um, and it's yeah. you know maybe it's again we've mentioned this before a lot of this you know maybe it's more of a symptom of the interconnectedness of the globe or things like that. Whereas some of those early proxy wars. Russia and the U.S. was kind of able to be like, ah, we weren't there. Like, what do you mean? You're crazy. Like, right. There's no way. And then you've got, you know, foot soldiers like, no, we saw Russian planes flying over Korea. Like, what do you mean? They're like, nah, you're nuts. Like, you're, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, and now it's like, you can't really, can't really get away with that. Right, right. Um, and then obviously now, I mean, but now it's like not even any secret. It's like the U.S. is like, oh, yeah, here's a public statement. We're sending 40 billion. Like, Here's a public statement. Germany sending a hundred and what was it? A hundred and twenty nine million pounds and England sending 200 million and France sending, you know, whatever. And pretty open, right? You know, you do have NATO kind of dancing around the idea of being involved with Russia because of the whole, the whole conflict. But Russia at the same time is kind of in the same ballet with NATO because they're like, well, we can't, we can't attack a NATO country, like really. It's this weird, messy whirl whirlpool of confusion. But it's definitely interesting. And then jumping back a little bit in 2016, I didn't even realize this. Canada was doing like its largest foreign military operations in history in Ukraine, training Ukrainian forces. So they sent a billion dollars worth of aid and their military into Ukraine and were training and updating in a, quote, reform initiative, the Ukrainian army. When was this? 2016. Oh, okay. And you have Trudeau, like, interesting speeches of him being like, yeah, we're here to support Ukraine. 
and like to protect them from the imminent threat of Russia and their illegal annexation of Crimea. And so they went boots on the ground, Canadians, boots on the ground in Ukraine. Yeah. Weapon systems, tanks, soldiers. I think it was like the biggest group of soldiers like off of Canadian soil in Ukraine, which is just wild. Yeah, that that raises, I think, a question that we started this whole series, Mm -hmm. you and I both kind of asking ourselves. And that is what is the Western world's interest in Ukraine? Beyond their, you know, people who want to have a liberal democracy. Because altruism is not the reason why anything happens right. in this yeah. world, right? So, like, that very well may be true, but that is not the driving factor why we're, ex- you know, exerting so much effort and resources to help them defeat Russia. And to what you've just outlined, like, and this isn't just a recent phenomenon this is something that's been going on for a very long time like why have we been so interested in ukraine i think in part certainly during the soviet era you know ukraine is strategically really really important to russia and it makes russia a more powerful nation Mm -hmm. if they have it and they have its resources and it's like strategic territory now that we're not you know now that the soviet union is has dissolved and it's not the preeminent threat to the Western world as it once was. I think supporting Ukraine just so that Russia doesn't have it, I don't think that's fully the picture anymore. I don't think that's fully the answer. That leaves us still wondering, like, why are, you know, Canadian leaders or current and past American presidents so invested in and interested in protecting their relationship with Ukraine? I don't know. I've been like, I, I think maybe you're in the same boat. We have been racking our brains trying to understand, like, w- why it doesn't make sense. The interest all the way back in the color revolutions and everything like that. Yeah. Honestly, most of the conflicts, you know, looking at a lot of these things, like, especially in, in with Contra and everything like that, like, a lot of it just doesn't make sense. Like, doing crazy things that ended up having horrible consequences. Yeah. But, like, seemingly playing with fire, like knowing that this wasn't a good idea. Well, I think at that time they just perceived the Soviet threat to be so great that it was worth funding these kind of radical groups because enemy of my enemy, at least they'll, at least they're not communists and at least like they're not backed by the Soviet Union. That's their number one enemy Mm -hmm. that like might blow us off the face of the earth. I mean, you have to think about it after world war two. I mean, like our parents were literally doing drills in school Mm -hmm. True. preparing for nuclear fallout like that was very much what people like thought could happen at any moment right so like that's a different level of threat that russia does not pose to us today i mean they have nuclear weapons and in theory they could wipe us off the face of the earth if they wanted to but we're not at the same sort of peak tension as we were with the soviet union immediately after world war ii so again i feel like some of these conflicts even though like the iran contra thing where it's like what you know or like somehow this leads to the cia like making a front company and smuggling cocaine into the u.s and then like arresting like young black men in inner cities for like doing cocaine yeah yeah exactly like causing a you know a whole epidemic of drugs across the united states and then later cartels smuggling weapons and drugs and human trafficking and like this whole spiral right and you're like okay now we're dealing with that yeah 
Yeah. But again, if like, if you think like, well, the enemy is my, the enemy, my enemy is my friend and we have this huge enemy. So we're willing to do crazy things to stop them. I can kind of, I don't support it, but I can kind of understand it. And today's hysteria to me, again, is kind of outside of that scope. Yeah, exactly. So I guess I wonder, like, is it like a, what is it, a Catfield McCoy kind of thing? Where Hatfield it's like, and McCoy. Yeah. It, is that the names? I, I think can't... Hatfield, yeah. Hatfield, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking of the cart. Did you ever watch, uh, there's a Looney Tune episode that's called The Catfields and, like, the Madogs. It's like cats and dogs fighting. <laughs> no, anyway. It's funny, though. But, like, this idea, like, you've got these two forces that are at odds, and now it's like, why are we doing all of this stuff? Like, maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's just they've kind of got lost in the the weeds here. Like, maybe you're not like the mortal enemies of each other anymore. Well, it's you know, and, and you said this last time. Like, maybe we need to do a whole series on Russia, and we probably right. do. But like, it's a shame that after the the Soviet Union dissolved, we weren't able to bring Russia into the quote unquote Western mm-hmm. world and like our alliance with the rest of Europe. That's and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, and maybe it wasn't possible, but like that seems like a huge missed opportunity and and like yeah. kept these tensions going. And you wonder if that was intentional. If it you know, nobody really wanted to bring them in. Maybe that yeah. was maybe that's what it was. That's kind of more and more how I perceive it. Mm-hmm. It was like, let's not even give them the opportunity to let's do everything in our ability to kind of strong arm them into continuing to be the enemy. Or maybe they thought they could keep them, they didn't trust them and they wanted to keep them weak. Yeah, yeah. And if they brought them in fully, there was a threat that they'd become, you know, as big of a world power as we were. Yeah. Right. But that's still, I mean, that kind of, that kind of makes things easier. Like when we were talking about last last episode being like, well, we've never dealt with like a a NATO force, like breaking a NATO treaty among a neighbor. Mm. Like if Russia was just part of NATO, that wouldn't be an issue, right? Like, yeah. And Ukraine was part of NATO. Like, technically, they couldn't have even tried to annex it because NATO would have had to respond. You know what I mean? It's like this weird. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's kind of, and that that goes back. Well, one point, like, if Turkey can be a member of NATO, then like, and maybe anybody can be a member <laughs> right, of NATO. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? But uh, you know, and... but but then it, that kind of goes back to the same kind of calculus of like. You know, you got the hawks and the doves in the foreign policy world in the U.S. And the hawks say, like, no, we need to Ukraine. Russia invaded Ukraine this most recent time because we hadn't armed Ukraine enough. And had they been armed more, it would have been a deterrent and Russia would not have invaded. And then you have I don't even know if you could call them the doves, but the people who are sort of skeptical of that theory say, well, actually, Putin has said repeatedly that he invaded as a preemptive strike because precisely because Ukraine was armed by NATO forces. Right. And that's, again, that's kind of this half truth of Putin that we keep referring to. It's like, right. That's true. Like over the last, I mean, NATO has just continually encroached and set up massive amounts of military on the Russian border. Yeah. They have, yeah, for a very for years. And Russia's been doing the same thing, right? And so they're pointing missiles at each other, right? And it's yeah, like, it's the same little flirting, flirtatious game they've yeah, been playing exactly. for almost a century. Yeah, I I kind of think that P- 
Putin would have invaded. Yes, it's true that NATO has been building up forces Mm -hmm. on parts of sort of eastern borders. And and it's a totally valid argument to think like, well, you're arming my neighbor. And why are you doing that? I think Putin would have when he thought the time was right, which I think he thought with after the fuck up of Afghanistan and America seemingly like weak and kind of embarrassed on the world stage. I think naturally it looked like it would be the right time. Oh yeah. And he wants Ukraine for strategic reasons. There is kind of this, you know, he gave a speech the other day sort of comparing himself to Peter the great, which is kind of like, I mean, I guess he's like, you know, obviously an important figure in like Russian culture, but Mm -hmm. also kind of like, wow, that's who you want to emulate. But anyway, right. I think so there's kind of like a cultural heritage, like reclaiming what's rightfully Russian. Like there's that narrative and there's probably some truth to that. But I think like in reality, it's, you know, when you come down to like hard, hard numbers, cold, hard facts, like they want the natural resources, the gas in Ukraine. Right? Yeah. They yeah. want to control that. that that's huge. They right? want that warm water port. Like yep. it's important for them strategically. Hundred percent. So, and then on top of that, it makes it easy for them to ship their resources through instead of having to yeah. circumnavigate Ukraine or make deals. Right. And and frankly, like if Ukraine, you know, if Ukraine was weak, I think of course they would have. It would have been easier for them to take it. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know how. I don't think that's a really valid argument. That you know, I like I get the fact that like everything we've done leading up to now has really worked against building like even attempting to have some kind of truce or like healthy working relationship with Russia but at the same time I think I don't think anything would have stopped them from taking Ukraine when the time was right I think having the right president in power to like deter them and put it off for four years is Mm -hmm. one thing but ultimately big picture it would have happened eventually yeah for sure and because there's no way that diplomatically they would have let half of Ukraine become part of Russia again. Like, I just don't see that ever happening or opening up water to Crimea and keeping the port and everything like that, which I think is, I mean, I think Putin's been vocal about it. Like, that's his conditions. Right. Well, and, and, and as we are too, but like, you can't, you can't read, you know, uh, what the man's thinking, but like, okay, if there was a diplomatic result, okay, like, what would have stopped them maybe from going further into Ukraine? Oh yeah, like if you cede some right. territory, yeah, yeah, yeah then exactly. They'll keep nibbling, yeah, for sure. Well, and then and then you think like, okay, so they can't come to a diplomatic solution over this because there's t- obviously too many. I mean, well, this whole situation in particular is. I think they've even turned some of the pro-Russian people in the east. It seems they've turned those people off because they've completely decimated their communities. Right, mm-hmm. so like there's like new tension there, but. There's so much internal tension and division between pro-Russia, pro-EU factions in Ukraine that those anti-Russian factions are never going to let a... They're not open to a diplomatic solution, and they've made that very clear. And Zelensky, who's influenced by them, has made it very clear, like, no, we're not going to settle for a diplomatic solution, and we're actually going to try to go back and like regain the territory we lost in 2014. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about it, listening to our last episode, not all, but a fair amount of what has stoked those tensions is American involvement. Right. So indirectly and directly the U S 
has really kept this conflict alive. Yeah. And this, this leads into my final little uh, remarks here before we can move into the next thing. But this ties into the idea of like adding tension to it and also like fueling some of the, the propaganda on both sides, but like the, you know, Oh, everything Putin says is a lie versus everything Putin says is true. All those half truths and things like that. And his accusations against the United States and against, you know, this proxy war and everything like that. There's a pretty good Washington post article from May 10, just a few days ago called Russia is right. <laughs> a the few U- months, a month ago. Oh yeah. Yeah. A month ago. Sorry. Yeah. yeah we're in, you're in June. So a month ago, <laughs> Russia is right. The U S is waging a proxy war in Ukraine. And here's a quote from it, which I thought was, was pretty good. Um, the way to wage a proxy war is to maintain a conspiracy of silence. The target state is more likely to refrain from retaliating if the other side can resist taking a victory lap. During the 1950s, for instance, the U.S. and the Soviet Union both suppressed the news that Soviet pilots were flying combat missions over North Korea as a way of keeping this limited confrontation under wraps and within bounds. And so the U.S. doesn't, obviously, with like the color revolution and things like that, and all of the CIA operations wants everything in their power wants them to not or wants the idea that they had an involvement in that or potentially funded the violence and things like that to never come to the surface. Right. And Russia probably has good intelligence and is like, well, yeah, you did this. And so it's this back and forth. And it kind of just all leads to, again, this, this horrible conflict. That just throws Ukrainian citizens in the middle of it all. Right. And um, you have to wonder if, like... yeah. You know, the mutual assured destruction is still alive and well. And that's, I mean, that was why the U.S. and the USSR never actually went head to head, right? Yeah. But it wasn't, but we still had to fight each other, right? So we did these proxy wars. So, like, I think that very much that's still, you know, like a war between us directly would be so fucking devastating for both sides that they don't want that. Right. But there's enough tension there that they're willing to use other people as fodder. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that's the biggest thing, right? It's like, ah, we can, we can just use the poor suckers for our, uh, our you know, death by a thousand cuts kind of deal. Right. Whether it's bleed an economy or bleed a government of funding, like we saw with Afghanistan and Russia the first time around, right, or the USSR as a whole. So it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And then you have things like a month ago, Biden being, you know, at a, at a press conference, AP reported, like, well, there's a video from AP, but, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, like, the idea that this is some sort of larger proxy war with Russia is an absolute lie. Like, okay, way to just, like, lie. Like, okay, everyone knows that's not true, but, like, yeah, let's go on national TV and be like, yeah, no, there's no proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. What are you talking about? I'd love to ask him, like, so define a proxy war. Yeah. And then describe what we're doing right now. Right. And how is there a difference between yeah, those yeah, two Yeah, exactly, things? yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of good resources on this, especially recently there's been a lot of more conversation and debate about, like, oh, is there a proxy war in Ukraine between the U.S. and Russia? Okay, yeah. But uh, there was a great debate on uh, France 24. They had, like, four members on that were talking about proxy war. It was a great little 40-minute segment worth listening to. I'll link it. Some good, again, some good Vice documentaries from 2014 talking about the proxy war. 2016, they were like, oh, yeah, this is what's going on with the proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, which is really funny, and then kind of like got put under wraps and everything like that. So 
As always, things are more confusing and convoluted and sticky than they may appear at the surface level. And the plot thickens. So do you care to continue this conversation along? (laughs) Yeah, totally. One one thing just before I dive into um, kind of the corruption angle of things that I wanted to share tonight, what you just said reminded me of another little tidbit I had. You know, it's really shameful how blatantly partisan the media is and how willing they are to sort of abandon their uh, perceived duty, right, to be objective and to share truth no matter where it leads, whatever. And media's never really ever done that, but it's sort of hyper-polarized today, <laughs> It's a nice right? idea, though. Right. Yeah. But there were these groups who were, you know, willing to sort of take a hard look at this stuff. And as we know, last time, especially during the Trump administration, all of a sudden, like, lefty outlets were totally willing to, like, point out that there's neo-Nazis in Ukraine and, like, you know, Trump's actually increased our funding to Ukraine. And so it's a problem now. And then as soon as Biden's in office and this conflict happens and they want to, you know, the left wants to make sure that they're not totally fucked in 22 and 24, you know, the media is silent about all of it. Yeah. And like, here's a novel idea. It's really bad that the U.S. has funded neo-Nazis for 75 years. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And guess how many different Republican and Democratic presidents have been in office since then? Exactly. Many different people. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And but today... Because basically that censorship has kind of reached like a new height because because of how decentralized media is now. And yes, we had social media, you know, during different wars, you know, like what happened in Syria and, you know, other, you know, it's not as if social media was invented in February when this war kicked off. Right. But the way it's used and the way it's sharing stuff from the front lines and use obviously as propaganda by both Ukrainians Ukrainians and Russians it feels like it's um just they were more saturated with it and so something that kind of freaks me out just one example twitter introduced its new crisis misinformation policy which in its press release said that it'll be harmonized with the united nations and major NGOs, and will again. Why the UN sucks? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. The like, fucking, what authority do they have? Yeah. The oh god, she was she uh, was a politician in Chile, and she's now on uh, the UN Human Rights Council. She went to China, and basically repeated Chinese Communist Party talking points about how you know basically like the Uyghur there's no genocide happening against the Uyghurs right. and these are just like vocational training camps where people are like blindfolded and forced to go there yeah. um, oh they're just blindfolded because of all the pinatas yeah and that's it's <laughs> fun here yeah so that's the UN and it's human rights council so yes the UN sucks but anyway so Twitter's new crisis mis- and information policy policy is going to be harmonized with the UN and other major NG- NGOs and it's going to be focused on misinformation related to armed conflicts, including, and it gives a list, false coverage or event reporting or information that mischaracterizes conditions on the ground as a conflict evolves, which it's like. That's how that works. The fog of war. So, so that just gives them carte blanche to like censor things that don't fit whatever is the prevailing narrative of mm-hmm. the day. How convenient. Uh, false allegations regarding use of force, incursion, incursions on territorial sovereignty, 
or around the use of weapons, demonstrably false or misleading allegations of war crimes or mass atrocities against specific populations, false information regarding international community response sanctions, defensive actions, or humanitarian operations, and the announcement notes that, quote, this first iteration is focused on international armed conflict starting with the war in Ukraine. So as soon as this conflict, like, you know, came to a head, yeah. powerful NGOs, the United Nations, major social media channels around the world came together and said, like, we're going to have a policy to make sure that one narrative is, what oh, is yeah. shared. Oh, for sure. So that's terrifying. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break. Then we'll be back to our conversation. If you like what you're hearing, help spread the word by leaving a five-star rating and one or two sentence review on your favorite streaming platform. Thank you to Reagan James for the use of our theme music, The Habit, off her album, Message. Find her work on Spotify and Apple Music. Thanks to the Highline Media Network for having us as a founding podcast. Here's a quick preview of a recent episode from our sister show, Keller's Couch. <laughs> I like this discussion with someone. If you're to take like a human's whatever cell, yeah. grow it, and you were to eat it, <laughs> make you a cannibal. <laughs> and I was like, huh, never really thought of that before. <laughs> Aren't there d- d- diseases you can get from eating people the brain yeah okay i think if it's just like some some of that fine delicious thigh meat yeah it wouldn't make a difference nothing like a good calf you know you know there'd be a whole market for like famous actors who could sell donor cells and you could like eat george clooney yeah oh my god you'd have a party that is a horrifying (laughs) concept (laughs) and i kind of love it (laughs) and now back to our conversation what I guess I want to talk about, which is certainly related, I'll try to thread it nicely to what you presented, but sort of this question of like, why are we so invested in Ukraine? And again, as I noted before, I think the calculus has changed now that we're not dealing with the communist Soviets. What I'm going to share is like a snowflake on top of an iceberg. Like I right. do not, it is not even the tip. It's like almost insignificant compared to probably, you know, like what is there, but I think it'll help kind of illustrate just how how powerful western leaders and russian oligarchs right on the other Mm -hmm. side of the equation have used places like ukraine uh for their own advantage and and i think you know there's a there's strategic reasons there's national security reasons but i think there's also like just straight up like corrupt bad incentives that are driving a lot of our interests there. I'm going to be starting with something present day and then kind of like working back. Cool. And I hope this isn't convoluted, but we can work our way through it. Um, So, and I'll link to the different articles that I'm referencing, but um, we, we finally have a new ambassador to Ukraine after a nearly three year gap. uh, When after uh, Trump fired the former ambassador, we didn't replace them until just like a month or two ago, month and a half ago, two two months ago maybe. Which that seems real bad. Big gap. So we didn't have an we didn't have an like how does that work? I wonder. There was no ambassador. There was no ambassador. Presumably, there's. I mean, the embassy was still there, so there's other staff. But yeah. 
Right. So it's like who filled because like it's not like we didn't interact with them right for that amount of time, especially with this leading up to the current conflict and. Yeah, actually, it is kind of yeah. So we didn't the, we didn't assign anyone until this conflict kicked off. Right. So you're like, who was doing that? Because yeah. clearly someone well, was. So what unelected or un you know properly I don't know designated person was filling that function. Right. Well, and why did it take so long is yeah. another question. They've brought on a woman named Bridget Brink, who's been kind of working in this space for a long time on Ukraine specifically. She's very familiar with the country mm. and the region. And I believe worked for the State Department prior to taking this post. She is close and maybe, you know, a protege is too strong a word, but a close colleague of Victoria Newland, who is the State Department rep who infamously discussed who the State Department was going to appoint to the new Ukrainian government once the 2014 coup was complete. Oh, that's right. We talked this about that. Newland yes. is the gal who was mm-hmm. on that infamous phone call that was leaked where they were picking out who they were going to put in power, mm-hmm. including some Svoboda people who wound up in power. I'll link to this story from Politico talking about her appointment, but I found it kind of interesting because it went on at length talking about how, um, here's one quote from it that I thought was quite interesting, just illustrating how uh, kind of murky and complicated the politics are in that country. Russia's war has to an unprecedented extent Quash long-standing beefs between rivals and smooth over the messy and complicated world of Ukrainian politics as the country unites to defeat a common foe. While the war goes on until Ukrainians win, my bet is this unity will prevail. The heads of the so-called opposition are now supporting the president, but sometime down the line, Brink will eventually need to step into the messy and murky world of Ukrainian politics. And that quote is from William Taylor, who was a former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Goes on to talk about uh, Brink, the new ambassador, he says she knows how the Washington machine works, and because she's so close to Newland, she has a very she has very good connections. She knows the people in the White House well and gets things done. If Brink has a shortcoming, it is that she has the view there are good guys and bad guys. Things are not black and white in Ukraine. That might be her disadvantage. Oh, which I thought really illustrated yeah, a lot yeah, of what yeah, we've yeah, talked exactly. about. <laughs> so. I read that and I thought, okay, I wasn't paying attention to Ukraine before the recent conflict and before we started this series, right? I definitely wasn't. I didn't. So I had to refresh my memory. Like, why did we have this huge, why did we have this gap without a, without a uh, ambassador? So Trump removed, fired, you know, fired's not the right word, but removed the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine in 2019. Her name was Marie Yanol. Yeah. Excuse me. Yo, let me let me try to get this. Jovanovich. Thank you. Jovanovich. So he got rid of her after claims surfaced that she spoke poorly of him <laughs> regularly. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. And it appeared she had been blocking attempts to investigate Joe and Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine. Uh, she clearly had disdain for Trump. It was kind of like known in, you know the circles of that industry. And I guess she had allegedly told her Ukrainian counterparts that Trump would be impeached and to not worry about him. It's Trump for quite some time leading up to, you know, it was publicly, it was known by 2019 that like Biden was probably going to be the, the uh, front runner for the election. Right. Mm -hmm. And then certainly 
inside politics, people knew that earlier than the public knew, right? So for a while, Trump was trying to get dirt on Biden. For sure, yeah. People knew about the dealings in Ukraine and any effort he made to try to have people investigate that, he, it was, he was being thwarted and he realized or thought that Yovanovitch was one such bottleneck. So the former Ukrainian prosecutor, Yuri Lutsenko, uh, he had a contentious professional relationship with Yovanovitch. Uh, she claimed that he was soft on corruption, which was an accusation that was repeated by the Obama administration and Joe Biden in particular. Here's a fun little fact. During the second term of the Obama administration, Biden was appointed to lead an anti-corruption campaign in Ukraine. He was oh, in charge of that. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, all right. He was, like, appointed to deal with Ukraine and, like, lead this anti-corruption charge, which is... You can't make this shit up. So it appears that Lunsenko, the former Ukrainian prosecutor, was he 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 didn't like Yovanovitch and Yovanovitch didn't like him. And uh, basically she won in the end. So a little bit of background on Lutsenko. And again, I feel like this seems maybe like random detail, but I feel like it helps paint a picture of like what modern Ukrainian politics is like. So in 2010, Lunsenko was charged with abuse of office and forgery by the prosecutor general of Ukraine at the time, who was named Viktor um, Chonka. I think there's a P in there. I think it's silent. And this was widely viewed as sort of political retaliation because Lutsenko had an investigative one of one of Yanukovych's cabinet members in prior years. Uh, in 2012, he was sentenced to four years in prison, but eventually he was pardoned by Yanukovych in 2013 because it looked like a political witch hunt. Mm -hmm. And again, remember... Yanukovych was the pro-Russian leader that was ousted in the Euromaidan coup in 2014. So Lutsenko is sort of a perceived enemy of the pro-Russian government. In 2016, after the coup, he became Ukraine's chief prosecutor under President Petro Poroshenko, who's the president that took over after the coup. He was the American pick. Mm -hmm. He... What do you mean? It was, it was the country's pick. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was... Um, so once he was, once Lutsenko became the chief prosecutor, he was accused of of undermining Ukraine's newly established National Anti-Corruption Bureau. I don't know enough about it to know whether that was more, you know, just like mudslinging or if it's valid or not. I do think that this goes to show how difficult and messy it is to attempt to control a foreign government. Like even though Lutsenko was appointed by the pro-Western president that like we wanted in power. He kind of proved to be a thorn in the side, mm -hmm. right, of certain American politicians. So it's, it's just, again, like messy trying to manipulate these things. So while, he, while in office, Lutsenko worked with Donald Trump, sort of. I don't mean like they were like having private meetings or anything, but like he worked with Donald Trump to try to find incriminating information on Joe Biden, right? Right. Uh, and the former ambassador wanted him removed trump got rid of her because of that and trump's mind or his sort of public claim was this ukrainian prosecutor is trying to look into biden's shady business dealings in ukraine and the u.s ambassador is blocking him so like fuck the u.s ambassador i'm getting rid of her so he did which i don't know how it's worked in the past that seems reasonable 
I mean, he can appoint yeah. those yeah. posts. So, But, like, that seems inappropriate for the U.S. ambassador to be engaging in. But I don't know what appropriate behavior is. Well, I would position. think a, an ambassador in a foreign country, if she really was thwarting legitimate investigations in that country, even illegitimate investigations in that country, you're an ambassador. You're not right. an elected official in that country. Right. So I do think it's totally inappropriate yeah, yeah. that she... And she's accused of that. Like, mm-hmm. so maybe that wasn't what was happening, but that's what it appears that's was happening. Public, yeah, public knowledge. So then, so she gets thrown out. The uh, Ukrainian prosecutor, Litsenko, is still in office. By the time 2019 rolls around, Zelensky is elected president in Ukraine, and he... Uh, Zelensky dismisses the prosecutor and then Trump apparently later tried to sort of pressure Zelensky to reinstate him and that did not happen. So a little more on how Lutsenko claims that the U.S. Embassy was obstructing his corruption investigations. I'm going to read just a little bit and I apologize guys. The last episode I feel like I read so much and I like couldn't read so I feel badly about that but um, I'll try to read this well this time and we'll link the story. So in a March 2019 interview with a columnist at the Hill, Mr. Lutsenko complained that the U.S. Embassy in Kiev was obstructing corruption investigations including by providing a do not prosecute list and restricting Ukrainian access to the U.S. Mr. Lutsenko's claims Claim is mentioned in the whistleblower complaint. The U.S. State Department at the time called the untouchable list claim an outright fabrication. Mr. Lutsenko later retracted the allegation about the list and said he had no evidence of Biden wrongdoing. He was dismissed in August. In early 2019, Mr. Lutsenko met twice with Mr. Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, Trump's private lawyer at the time, Mm -hmm. who around the same time stepped up his quest to collect information he could excuse me, collect information he could use to persuade Ukraine to open an investigation into the Bidens. The men met in New York in January and in Warsaw in February. Mr. Yana- Miss Jovanovich was recalled about two weeks after the election on April 21st, 2019, the election of Zelensky. And at that point, the up until just recently, the State Department had, didn't name a successor. In the July 25 call, Mr. Trump described Miss Jovanovich to Mr. Le- Zelensky as bad news. Mr. Zelensky responded saying, it was great that you were the first one who told me that she was a bad ambassador because I agree with you 100%. So Zelensky, I think, was on board with the U.S. ambassador being a problem Mm -hmm. to the country. But perhaps he was pressured regardless into getting rid of the prosecutor. Or maybe he didn't like either of them. Anyway, so Trump sort of looking for dirt on his would-be 2020 opponent pushed for an investigation into Hunter Biden's Ukrainian business dealings, and that is the infamous phone call that earned him his first impeachment. And just to refresh everyone's memory on that, Trump blocked payment of a congressionally mandated $400 million military aid package to allegedly obtain a quid pro quo cooperation from President Zelensky. Trump released the aid before the complaint was known by Congress or the public, Allegedly, after he learned that a whistleblower had leaked the conversation, but regardless, mm-hmm. Congress impeached him. Yeah. So we have been, Ukraine has been like at the heart of a lot of messy American politics for oh, the past couple administrations. Yeah. Something worth considering was Lutsenko looking into the Biden family shady dealings with Burisma. 
And is that why he and the U.S. Embassy were at odds? And once it became clear that he would likely be the Democrat Party pick to run against Trump in 2020, once it became clear Biden would be, is that why they seized on the opportunity of a new Ukrainian president to to fire the prosecutor and squash any attempts at exposing information that would damage candidate Biden? Mm -hmm. It seems like maybe that's maybe that's what was happening there. Um, And then I have some thoughts and notes to share about Hunter Biden's laptop, which I hope people aren't (laughs) sick of hearing about. But like, actually, we've never really talked about it. We never really have, except for in the censorship one. Yeah, we mentioned it. Just mentioning it it like that story. Right. But especially recently, more stuff has come out about his laptop. Well, it hasn't. And to me, if we're all going to be gung-ho on Ukraine. Mm Mm-hmm. It's kind of an important, recent, relevant piece of the story that I think we should all be aware of. Because it involves our current president. Yeah, exactly. And the country that we're sending a ton of money to. Right, to aid. that is in the middle of a war with... Ancient a, rival of yeah, ours. Exactly. It's, like, like, it's Yeah. It matters. It totally matters. Yeah. yeah. So Hunter Biden has been under investigation for failing to pay taxes mm-hmm. since his father was vice president. But the inquiry broadened in 2019. 20- 2018 to look into his international business dealings and how those intersected with Biden's political career. Now, Hunter has paid off a tax liability of over a million dollars that I think investigation or that is somewhat solved. But the investigation into his business dealings by the FBI is ongoing. So I think most people are familiar with how sort of the laptop was discovered. He left his computer and hard drive at that computer repair shop in Delaware. Um, It was seized by the FBI in December of, what year was that? 2019? Yeah, 2019. And the shop owner had, he had had alerted the feds about it and the FBI eventually seized, seized the computer. Before turning over the gear, the shop owner says that he made a copy of the hard drive and later gave it to former Mayor Rudy Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello. And again, Giuliani at this point was Trump's personal lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So there's there's also, I mean, Giuliani is kind of like this little snake that's been like in the mix of a lot of this stuff, too. Because he's known, because I think this stuff has been known, right? So he's trying to get dirt on his political enemy for, for Trump. And then Steve Bannon, who is the former advisor to Trump, told the Post about the existence of the hard drive, and then Giuliani provided the Post with a copy of it. So they helped facilitate getting this story out. So into the details of it, Hunter used, it's pretty clear that he used his father's influence to obtain sort of lucrative positions and business deals in foreign nations in exchange for access and political influence. One thing worth noting, because like that alone is not, shocking right lots of people have done that but to do that with like china and russia and countries that are like a national security threat yeah to the u.s is another level of it is another level yeah he, he had dealings with the 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 i can't remember if the, we ever even knew his name but like the chinese businessman that ended up being like complete and total fraud yeah, yeah, that guy, like, disappeared. Yeah, exactly. By the Chinese Communist Party. Uh-huh. Like, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot there. Yeah, um, this is the stuff, too. Like, I don't do, like, I just wonder if people really know, like. They yeah. gave him a giant diamond in exchange. Yeah, like, Hunter Biden had interactions with a Chinese businessman that probably was working for the 
the government. Oh, sure. You're right? not, you aren't a freewheeling yeah, independent exactly. business, like wealthy millionaire in China. Who then just like disappeared. Like it's just. Yeah. He got out of line. He made a problem for the, for the government and they, and he just was like Hurt. movie stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so Hunter joined the board of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma in April of 2014. Yep. Let's take note of that date. That yes. is two months after the Euromaidan uprising and ouster of President Yanukovych. So as soon as the U.S. helped get rid of the pro-Russian president and install the pro-Western government, yep. the vice president's son yes. gets a lucrative position on the board of one of the most powerful energy companies in the country. With zero qualifications. Zero qualifications, and he's making $50,000 a month. Uh, $50,000 a month. 50000 a month, yes. Is a lot of money. It is a lot of money. <laughs> and from what I've seen, I don't know if this is through Burisma or just his lucrative business success, from 2014 to 2018, Hunter Biden made $11 million. From 2014 to 18? Uh-huh. $11 million? Uh-huh. Wowzers. He was also a bankrupt. <laughs> and he preferred crack. I find that really interesting. Yeah. Have you ever seen there's an, <laughs> Have you ever seen Do you ever watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Have you ever seen the one where Sweet D and Dennis get hooked on crack? Uh I don't know if I have. But it's I'm really, sure it's great. It's really great. <laughs> and then like for the rest of the shows like mm-hmm. run every now and then they're like, "Have you guys ever tried crack?" And people are like, "What are you talking right. about?" They're like, "It's actually really great." It's really great. I feel like that's Hunter Biden. I know. And then I also <laughs> saw that from a report Talking about what they found on the hard drive. Expenditures compiled off of the hard drive shows that Hunter Biden spent more than $200,000 per month from October 2017 through February 2018 on luxury hotels, Porsche payments, dental work, and <laughs> cash work. withdrawals. Gross. Cash withdrawals for his prostitutes. Yeah. And crack. So you're like, uh, oh my God. Uh, very cool. Very fun. Great. Very qualified for the position of running a massive energy uh company well and that's just like extorting <laughs> resources from one country and like funneling them to some like overprivileged little shithead in yeah. another country it's yeah. like fucking ridiculous but anyway um so one email found on his laptop involved hunter introducing his father then vice president biden to a top executive at at uh, burisma mm-hmm. um less than a year before biden pressured the government official government officials in Ukraine into firing the prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. Yep. So we'll get into that. So the meeting is mentioned in a message of appreciation from uh, Vadim Bozharsky, who was an advisor to the board of Burisma. He sent this email to Hunter Biden on April 17th, 2015, about a year after Hunter joined the board And the email said, Dear Hunter, thank you for inviting me to D.C. and giving an opportunity to meet your father and spend time together. It's really an honor and pleasure. Um, An earlier email from May 2014 also shows Bozarski, Bozarski, reportedly he's Burisma's number three executive and the advisor to the board. Uh, He was asking Hunter for advice on how you could use your influence on the company's behalf. so, well, and then just one more little tidbit here about that. So another email from Burisma's from Pazarski to Hunter and his business partner, Devin Archer, 
who was like along for the ride throughout this whole thing. Devin Archer just recently was sentenced to more than a year in prison for his role in a scheme to defraud a Native American tribe of some $60 million in bonds. Ooh, real quality. So he's in jail now. Um, So Bazarski reaches out to Hunter and this guy, Devin Archer, asking them for help in dealing with Svoboda party members in government that were allegedly blackmailing the founder of Burisma. <laughs> um, and I just have an excerpt that I want to read from the... Uh, exchange because given our neo-Nazi conversation, I think people will find it interesting. I'm just going to read this. So it says, following our talks during the visit to Lake Como, or excuse me, Como Lake. I'm dyslexic. I'm not actually, but sometimes I am. <laughs> and our further discussions, I would like to bring the following situation to your attention. As previously pointed out on a number of occasions, the representatives of new authorities in power tend to quite aggressively approach NZ, and NZ isn't identified, but it's assumed that that is the, um, the founder of Burisma. Those are his initials. New authorities in power tend to quite aggressively approach NZ unofficially with the aim to obtain cash from him. Initially, it was done by the represent- representatives of Svoboda Party and the Ministry of Internal Affairs. These so-called unofficial communications would entail blackmailing in case we don't cooperate, provide money and cash to gas production business of NZ would be stopped, destroyed, etc. It's important to note that Svoboda Party is represented in the government by the General Prosecutor and the Minister Mm -hmm. of Ecology and Natural Resources of Ukraine, the last organ together with the State Geological and Subsurface Survey of Ukraine, which is directly subordinated to the Minister... Ministry of Ecology and Natural Resources of Ukraine are principal regulators in the area of issuing licenses for natural resources and control, i.e. natural gas. And I'll stop there. I won't read the rest of it. People yeah. will link to it and people can read it. But I just found it interesting that he noted how influential Svoboda is, right? And this is dated May 12th, 2014. So again, right after the 2014 coup, which yep. Svoboda helped implement. Exactly. And we allowed those neo-Nazis to be put in power in Ukraine. And then it also appears that that same Burisma executive was was asking Hunter to help in preventing new taxes that would have hurt Burisma's business. So let's get into a little bit about how Joe Biden pressured the Ukrainian president and prime minister into firing Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin. Shokin was the prosecutor general for a year between 2015 and 2016. Less than eight months after Pozarski thanked Hunter Biden for the introduction to his dad, the then vice president admittedly pressured Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko and Prime Minister Arseniy Yatsenyuk into getting rid of Prosecutor General Viktor Shokin by threatening to withhold one billion U.S. dollars in loan guarantees during a December 2015 trip to Kiev. This is the quote from, and we'll link the video. I'm sure people have seen it. Biden is at uh, this meeting and he's bragging about this and he says, I looked at them and said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor is not fired, you're not getting the money. He bragged this to the yep. Council of Foreign Relations in 2018. So he's referring back to what happened. And he said, well, son of a bitch, he got fired. Shokin has said that at the time of his firing in March 2016, he'd made specific plans to investigate Burisma that included interrogations and other crime investigation procedures into all members of the executive board, including Hunter Biden. Right. So talk about a fucking quid pro quo. Right? Yeah, seriously. That's what's so that's what's so interesting about it too. It's like And like <clears throat> maybe Trump's conversation 
was inappropriate and yeah. maybe it was a quid pro quo. But I, I mean, and so it doesn't really matter legally, I suppose. But like if if Trump Trump was trying to get them to investigate a corrupt politician. Yeah. Biden's quid pro quo was to stop an investigation, an investigation. into his corrupt political dealings. Yes. There is a big difference there. That kind of is a huge difference. And with with holding aid to a country until corruption is investigated is not a bad thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind like, of just a good leverage point, I suppose. Right. Be like, hey, Ukraine, uh, yeah. who we have been trying to weed out corruption for decades and Previous vice president's <laughs> yeah. job was to weed out corruption. <laughs> right. We would like you to now weed out some corruption. Right. And until we can get some of these things figured out, maybe we shouldn't send $400 million to you. Right. Right. It should be our prerogative to withhold. But I think the right. problem in Trump's case was like <laughs> this was like a package that was like set and ready to go. And he like. Right. It, right. You know. It was actually so something. Him interrupting that was a bigger problem. But. Right. um. Yeah, there's definitely a double standard there, right? Yeah, I'm like, massive one. Why haven't we just impeach them both? That's fine with me. Yeah, well, and and then of course, you know, immediately after this whole thing, when it kind of blew up, what what was Obama's quote on Biden? Don't never underestimate Joe Biden to fuck something. Yeah, I up. know. <laughs> so he goes out, and then they go on TV and they pretend they're buddy buddy. I like, know it's obnoxious. Like, That's so dumb. So you know, so like clearly Obama hates you. Oh, totally. <laughs> Poor Obama. I mean, I'm not a fan of Obama for a lot of reasons, but like basically Obama needed like what appeared to be like a nice old white man yeah, to help milk get him toast elected. White dude, though, yeah. Just I'm sure that just like was grating on him. But anyway, but um but yeah, like of course, you know, so fucking Joe Biden goes out and makes a fool of himself and like says the quiet part out loud that you're not supposed to tell and he like says it on fucking video in front of all these people in press. And so then they had to like walk it back, right? And and, uh, you know, and here's the thing. The establishment rallied around him. Yeah. Of course not, you know, like Republicans or whatever, but like the establishment, like the people that are in the State Department, like just the people who are career political entities and the EU, much of the EU rallied around him and were like, well, Shokin, that prosecutor was, he was corrupt. So he needed to get fired. So that it had nothing to do with what Biden said. Like yeah. he got fired just because he was like a bad prosecutor and he was corrupt. So like you read about this stuff and it's like apparently every prosecutor since at least 2014 in Ukraine has been horribly corrupt and has had to be like dismissed. Yeah. So, you know, and it and it seems like you're corrupt if you start investigating the wrong person. Right. And it well, depends on who's in power. Yeah, exactly. So you know, I don't know how corrupt he actually was. I think he started like knocking on the wrong doors and that got him in trouble. Um, and same with the other prosecutors that got in trouble. Right. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, again, though, it's like it just speaks to what a fucking like tangled web of messy, dirty dealings Ukraine is, you know, and how deeply entrenched we are in all of it. So I, I, I just feel like Hunter Biden's dealings in Ukraine are kind of a perfect example of how foreign aid and whether that's financial or military or intelligence or training or whatever, like 
it's kind of just sta- a state sanctioned form of money laundering, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, U.S. gives aid to Ukraine. Ukrainian company appoints a U.S. politician's son to its board, pays an absorbent amount of money, and then the son gives those, you know, key officials and powerful people in the country access to his American politician daddy, and they can cut deals, you know, and make sure that, like, the U.S. can put the right political pressure. I mean, look what we did in 2014. We were like a god in terms of what happened in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we made sure it ended the way we wanted it to end, you know? Yeah. And we have the power and money and influence to say, to, like, create a, the right narrative that goes out around the world so that, like, everybody's on the same page, you know? So if you get, if you get now, Trump was an outlier, but typically if you get an American president to, like, say this is how things are going, like, you is generally going to get a get on board with it, right? Like, and then all of a sudden you got the whole Western world, you got the most powerful countries. Like, yeah, exactly. There's a lot of value in getting access to these people. Um, and then for us, it's like, well, we're going to put this little person on this board. He's in a key position. Everyone's going to be coming to us, asking us for favors, and we can make sure things geopolitically go the way we want them to go. But of course, everything's infinitely <laughs> more complicated than yeah, that, yeah. and it never does. Yeah. But I think that's the end. That's the goal, right? Is to try to manipulate and control the geopolitics of that region. So it's pretty gross. It is gross. It's real <laughs> it's gross. It's pretty bad. Yeah. And yeah, we could do a whole thing on Hunter that's like treasure trove of insane. Yeah, which, corruption. you know, we probably should eventually as more, you know, once, once yeah. like, you know. After the next election, when stuff comes out, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it really seems like uh, it, it's kind of shocking, too. When you look back on coverage, I was, like, reading stuff from, you know, 2019, 2020 today. And, I mean, everyone really was just, I mean, everyone hated Trump at that point, right? And so, I guess it was easy to make him the boogeyman. But to point to cover for the stuff Joe Biden was doing and like the pre, you know, the New York times just finally released that long report a couple months ago, acknowledging like, Oh yeah, the laptop's totally real. This FBI is investigating him. These business dealings are shady, you know? Right. And that's people knew about this for a very long time though. They did. They knew about it. People in that world knew about it way before the Washington post or excuse me, the New York post piece. Like, People on the inside, that's why Trump was trying to, you know, get them to investigate it. People knew about this stuff for a long time. Right. And that's what's so crazy, too, is because you have, like, NPR, when that happened, was like, well, we're we're not going to report on it because it's just blatantly false. And MSNBC and all these major news outlets were like, this is most definitely Russian disinformation. Right, right, Here's, right. There was that whole manifesto signed by a bunch of, like, um, that memo by all the ex- the, the expert like uh, they were ex intelligence service yeah, people yeah, exactly. it was like forty people or something right yeah. they're like this is definitely just propaganda no one has been had no one had to no one's held responsible for that or come out and you know said oh we got that one wrong yeah, well, we're my, my we're my fucking bad. we're in we're the preeminent cream of the crop intelligence yeah. service people and we thought something was Russian disinformation that was absolutely not Russian disinformation. Right. You'd think that they would need to be held accountable. The for other that. thing too, which interests me, is the the counter argument to the Hunter Biden thing was like, "Oh, that's so stupid. Why would Biden 
Hunter Biden ever leave his laptop at, you know, a a uh, repair shop? Or, oh, why would, you know, why would a repair guy call the FBI? Because like, he saw what was uh, on cause it. Because he got on a hard drive and was like, oh, this is bad. Right. Or also, like, I mean, it just doesn't seem like that far of a stretch. Well, that's not even a question anymore. To have anymore. Hunter Biden... Who spent four years blowing eleven million dollars right doing on crack. drugs, luxurious items, and prostitutes right to not have the brain capacity to pick up his laptop. Well, he's sloppy. Remember the whole story about how he 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 had a gun and he <laughs> left it. He like oh my ditched God, it. Yes. He was in a he was at this point he was having an affair with his dead brother's widow and like. Yeah. That's a whole nother thing. Yeah. That's like- and he like left a gun. She got scared and thought he was going to harm himself. And she like ditched it in a dumpster behind like a Mexican restaurant or something. Yeah. And like, and the secret service basically covered for him. But like, again, yeah. where's the liberal outrage where it's like, why does this privileged cisgender white male get to break, like blatantly break like, you know, firearm laws, you know, and like be totally reckless mm-hmm. and there are no repercussions. Yeah. None. And the other thing too is like, I never think that like smearing someone is a good route for like having a, a constructive conversation, but like, yeah, you can't like not talk about We're this. We're not even smearing them. No, I know, I know. I know. I know exactly. But it's like, like yeah. this all leads into the like, how is someone that's like willing to like have an affair with his dead brother's you know, widow. Yeah. You know, a horrible drug addiction, which, look, people recover from drug addictions, but, like, he clearly wasn't trying while he was in the middle of, you know, potentially compromising national security and, like, all these other things and dealings that we don't even know about and accusations about far more horrible things Yeah, that he's got his nasty little fingers in. Right. Like, all of this is just continuing to support the hypothesis that like this dude's real messed up. Right. And he he left a laptop full of really horrible things at a repair shop. And and again, <laughs> like that that has is confirmed by the FBI. Yeah. That that laptop is in fact Hunter Biden's. Mm-hmm. So like that's not a question anymore. Like right. he was sloppy enough to leave his laptop there. And that guy was like, Oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this. Could you imagine? Like that's how you get like taken out. Yeah, but or, or that's like, of how of course he wanted to get rid of it. Or that's how like the FBI or the CIA ends up smearing him, right? Like, yeah, totally. Now, yeah. and that's probably why he Sued. made a copy of uh-huh. it and gave it to the opposition party to be like, mm, I need to make sure like I'm not the only guy who knows about this. Yeah, which is what you should do. I mean, frankly, it yeah. probably is what you should do. And then there was all the BS reporting of like, well. The issue is not so much what's on the laptop. <laughs> it's really more an ethical argument. An ethical ab- argument. About how it was acquired. Right, right, right. And you're like, oh my God. That was the initial excuse. It was like, well, this was acquired by illicit means, so we can't report on it. It was like, what the fuck were you guys doing throughout the like, entire trip? The U.S. Trump government collision? gets information all the time by illicit means. Of course. <laughs> how about how like, the IRS allowed like the tax returns and private financial information of like, Hundreds of people to be released. Like, uh, yeah. Nobody's responsible for that. <laughs> like, nobody cares. Everybody right, exactly. used that information and reported on it. Like, give me a break. 
one last little thing just about how we've kind of created this like red herring of like Russian disinformation. So way before or decent amount of time before the New York Post story broke this whole laptop story, two senators, Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson, started to look initially their probe was looking into the 2016 like Hillary Clinton's smear campaign and like the entire how she set off the Russian collusion narrative in 2016. But then it sort of expanded into um when Democrats were leveled charges against Donald Trump regarding Ukraine, they started looking into like, okay, what's so what is what why is Trump thinking that there's dirt on Biden and it kind of went in that direction. So by the spring of 2020, it was well known uh, that the Republicans intended to release a report outlining the Biden family's seedy financial ties to Ukraine. Um, well, to Ukraine and China and other places. So the Democrats kind of got out ahead of the story and their response was to totally malign uh, the probe and those senators with their favorite charge of Russian disinformation. Mm, mm -hmm. So top Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mark Warner, Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff, I think, is one of the worst people on the planet. Um, Amen. Just like he's lied under oath a million times and nobody cares, apparently. But so these top Democrats and, and so them and then people on the House and Senate Intelligence Committee uh, in July 2020 publicly released a letter to the FBI expressing worries that Congress had become, quote, the target of a concerted foreign interference campaign. And so they and the media picked it up and it was this whole thing about how these two senators were like these dupes that were being, you know, tricked by Russian secret agents into thinking that like Biden and Hunter were corrupt in Ukraine when they really weren't. And it turns out they absolutely <laughs> were. And it wasn't Russian disinformation. And then that just makes me wonder like that on top of like the four years of everyone in on the left in America claiming that Vladimir Putin was controlling Trump and had stolen the American presidential election, which is a huge charge to claim. Uh, yeah. Like, what is that? What is that American propaganda? What does that do? How does that affect Putin's thinking and view and perspective on America? How does that affect our relationship with Russia? And what did, what does that do to the, you know, to the Russian people and how does that change their perspective of us? Right. And like it feeds into, and, yeah. Yeah. And what is it, you know, how does that just change, you know, not necessarily like how things have turned out in Ukraine, but just like the sentiment on both sides. Like it's, it's a really, I remember when I first heard them say that I was like, they're fucking going to start a nuclear war with this claim. Cause that's a big claim in reality. If yeah. somebody stole, if a foreign power, if the mullahs in Iran managed to like, get their guy elected and like, I, you know, they never had concrete claims of how, but like if they were able to like change votes or whatever and actually steal it, like you go to war over that, you know, or you should. And right. Like you got to right. get rid of that guy. He's yeah. public enemy number one. So for that whole thing to just be fabricated and to be just this shallow, like craven, desperate political move to like get their power back without any regard for what that does to our relationships internationally and what it means long-term geopolitically is 
it's so reckless and so irresponsible. It's true, and it it just it further taints like the reputation that the United States has globally. I mean, people see yeah. that, and you can look at it and be like, "Oh, wow, these uh, top leading officials are jokes." Right. Like they're willing to lie, cheat, and scheme in any way possible to get what they want, and that's right. that's for both sides. And it's like there's no difference between the Trump era when everyone on the left thought Trump stole the election. And it was all fake and Russiagate and, right. you know, he was a puppet for Putin. Right. And then, like, now that, you know, Biden stole the election. Right. Like, no, there is You know, it's like, right now, it's like, oh, yeah, if you thought that the last election was stolen, like, you're an idiot. Ha, 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 ha. You all thought that the one before was stolen. Totally. I'm like. Totally. Yeah. It's, I know. It's just, I can't fathom it. We're just evolving into this, like, really stupid it's bad, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, because of course the next election, that's what's going to happen. No matter who wins, it's going to be. It's really dangerous for the country if you don't. Have, it is if you don't have faith in that, the whole thing starts to fall apart. Right, and it's like you know, let's hope Biden doesn't win the last next election. But like, uh, if he doesn't, right, they're going to be like, how could he have possibly lost, lose? Like, right, right, inconceivable. Inconceivable. <laughs> <laughs> be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Little Princess Bride reference. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like, all right, I don't know. Trying to make sense of it is is difficult. Trying to navigate that is yeah is difficult. Yeah, you don't I- want to get too consumed with hopelessness, but no, 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 definitely like, <laughs> woo, kind of stand stand on the sides and be like, you know, in the middle, like looking left and right and being like, what the heck is going on? Like, right. We've said this so many times. Like, y'all are the same. Yeah, no, they really are. Yeah, they really are. Like you're looking at the mirror, and, and you, like you you're shouting at the person on the other side, and you're just looking at a mirror. It's yeah, like, right. Yeah, I think I'm increasingly just like so disgusted with both parties that I want to check out. Yeah, oh yeah, me too. But I can't. No, no, we can't. We can't. <laughs> we got to keep trooping on. We got to keep it up. Yeah, totally. Well, we gotta. Start the whiskey party or something. Yeah, the whiskey party. That'd be yeah, good. yeah. It's like not quite libertarian. Yeah, we so can, we can organize. We can, we can do better than that. Yeah. <laughs> Although no, we don't want to be politicians. Fuck politicians. Yeah. yeah. So maybe we need a. What What would be like the ideal, like. Neo anarcho. Uh, liberal. Yeah, neo anarcho liberalism. Neo anarcho liberalism. Neo anarcho voluntary li- voluntary liberalism. Voluntary liberalism. I like it. Yeah, that's what we. That are doesn't now. sound complicated or no. <laughs> difficult to implement. What's our tagline? Do whatever you want. Leave me alone. Yeah, do whatever you want. Uh, leave me alone, but you can't be violent. Don't hurt anybody. No coercion. Well, no. No coercion. You're allowed to hurt people, but. Oh. Just not to get your means. Mm. Someone's trying no to hurt. No coercion. Yeah. Yeah. No coercion. If someone's trying to hurt you. You can definitely hurt them. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. That'll be our second rule. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> our second tenant. Yeah. <laughs> Thou shalt not hurt unless you are being hurt. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I don't know if we uh, 
I don't know where I, I, I have a feeling that this conversation is going to kind of be broadened beyond Ukraine and kind of just evolve or, you know, I, I don't know if we have like another series in mind or if we want to just keep kind of exploring, not maybe myopically on Ukraine, but. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just sort of this, these themes maybe. I, I don't know. What I are think you so. Thinking? We're, you know, what, halfway through the year now? Um, Wild. I know. So we're halfway through the year. We've done so much content. We have. Which. All of it is going to be valuable for further analysis of other events, political or non, yeah. really. Yeah. I feel like with, you know, you just learn a lot about mm. people talking about these things. Right. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what we want to dive into next. We'll have to discuss this, honestly. Yeah. We'll get some feelers out there. There's a lot of topics I know people want to hear about. Um, I got a recommendation from somebody that would be a non-political topic. Um. That would maybe back up a little bit to our ideological conversation uh, and talk about, now he didn't phrase it like this, but maybe understanding like humans' perception of the future. So maybe talking a little bit about like the futurists and specifically he approached it from like a science fiction standpoint, but like trying to understand like how did say like people uh, 1920s view what the future would look like Versus like how it is now and how we think the future is going to be. That's interesting. Which is kind of, I think, a little more lighthearted. Yeah. We could refer to some some political ideologies, but also I was thinking we could refer to a lot of literature, you know, science fiction kind of literature and see, Uh you know, the idea like, yeah, in 30 years we're going to have flying cars. Now it's like, in 30 years, like, AI is going to take over the world. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and my mind goes to like the environmental perspective of like the the two camps of kind of like don't touch it and then the mm-hmm. others were like no technology is what's going to like help us preserve it kind of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, so that that could be a good yeah. kind of fun intermediate topic and then there's plenty of more long-term topics to have, topics sh- we probably need to revisit. Shit's going to hit the fan somewhere again. It's hitting every fan all the time. Oh, yeah. So we can just, just, we'll pick, we'll find some, we'll get inspiration soon, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, thanks for joining us as always. We'll be back next time for a News and Brews episode. Um, And then, no, I think 4th of July lands right, so we won't be taking any time off for that. Although, I'm going to be gone for my birthday. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll be taking some time off around 4th of July. Yeah. uh, A little bit after, but... Yeah. So until then, hop online, catch up with us on Twitter, Instagram. Yep. Check out old episodes if you haven't listened. Yeah. Leave Uh, a review. Yeah, leave a review. That'd be great. Be great. I'm like patiently waiting the day that we actually have enough reviews to have five stars on Spotify. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's definitely going to be five stars, guys, right? Right. It would be lovely. Uh, and like tweet at us with your constructive criticism. I have a feeling that some of the people who don't align with us politically have dropped off as listeners because they don't, we're not getting questions on Twitter anymore from them, which is yeah, fine. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's okay. But, you know, those who are listening, if you don't agree or if we got something wrong or you have strong thoughts, like totally welcome, friendly. Yeah, no, yeah, we will not come at you. Like, no, no, we're friendly about it. Yeah, so, at best you know. we'll answer your questions, and at worst we'll just ignore you. So yeah, at worst I'll just ignore you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Non-aggression principle, right? Right. Be like mm, I can't engage without 
I can't engage with this without being violent, so I better not. So I better just <laughs> walk away, turn my app off. Yeah, we won't block you, though. No, no, no. No, no, no. Never. Well. Shouldn't say never. Unless never you're doing illegal never. things. Never but, say never. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're capable of great things. Right. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. I think that's it. I think that's it. We love you. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Hey gang, Keller Paulson here. I know what you're thinking. What's going on? Who is this guy? Am I right? Well, I'm the host of Keller's Couch. Now, Keller's Couch is an interview podcast where I, Keller Paulson, interview people I find interesting that are doing cool things in the community. But it's not just that. My friends at Slapstick Improv and myself, we also do some improv comedy and sketch comedy every other episode. So, if this tickles your fancy, why don't you scoot on down? Pop a squat on Keller's couch. Bye. Highline Media Network. Artist-owned podcasts by normal people in normal places.